So, news. Any, like, literary and or metal news seems completely superfluous at the moment because, A, the planet's still dying. Oh, yeah. Big time. Just... Startling rate. We are just owning our own environment and, by extension, ourselves. And also because there are, like, a fuckload of fascists walking through uh, my old town of Portland, which isn't anything new except the, like, sheer quantity of fascists. Uh, And potentially by the time this comes out, there could be another, like, murders, like uh, Charlottesville last year. Um, Also, probably something that Americans aren't going to have heard of because get a little buried, is that uh, the largest uh, left-wing bookstore in London, uh, which bookmarks in Bloomsbury Street, it has been ransacked by right-wing... Well, the Guardian calls them protesters. But walking into a bookstore and smashing things and, like, ripping books apart isn't a protest. Like, even if, like, the left did that to a hypothetical right-wing bookstore, I wouldn't call that a protest. I'd just call it an attack. Yeah. That's, it's just they were attacked. Like, and um, the people in the bookstore had to call the police twice because just as in Portland, uh, there's a, like, complicity between the police and literal neo-Nazis is... There's a there's a, a fair bit of it, and um, I really hope like seeing this complicity between the two is going to wake up a few of those uh, Hillary liberal types to the fact that the police aren't on your side, and that when push comes to shove, they'll always pick the Nazis because the Nazis, spoiler, are actually just more cops. They're like unofficial cops. They're like um, partisans. Yeah, that was the example I was going to bring up. Yeah, they're they're like the dudes who uh, take to the hills and dress in regular clothes. Or in this case, uh, they dress in the dumbest clothes possible. And they do capitalism's job for it in the same way the police do, just they have uniforms. That's, That's how this is working, just like it did in the 30s. It's happened again, but in a stupid way. You know, tragedy, then farce. But yep. don't forget uh, that farce can also kill you. Yeah, farce is, uh, in fact, uh, tragicomic death is the most common mode of farce. Um, yeah, the, like, yeah, comedies still have a pretty high body count. Um, and that's where we're at right now. That, that and the world dying. But, yeah, um, it's, so it's... Um, yeah, it feels some days like the, uh, the rise of fascism is a, and by some days, I mean, literally every day, uh, Mm -hmm. is a direct correlate to the dying of the earth, um, as a, and this is one of the things that I think philosophically a, um, a nihilism mindedness can help with that same kind of thought that's at the center of like Buddhism or something like that, which is that when faced with the viciousness and impermanence of, uh, because of the radical death of the earth, all life, um, 
we're nothing, nothing but good moods here today. Uh, <laughs> but when faced with that, you can either fall into like an eclipsing panic where you'll strive for any kind of order presented to you whatsoever, anything that will make you feel temporarily safe. Or you can, uh, and this is the Buddhist notion of acceptance, is not that you like what's going on, you just acknowledge that it's real. Uh, so, like, accepting that there are fascists doesn't mean that you like them, it's just that you recognize them instead of lying to yourself and going, like, no, cops are just trying to do their jobs and there's absolutely no bad actors in any of these uh, sectors, that's, you know, it's because of the classic thing, you can't begin to address any of these things to any capacity if you don't acknowledge what it is that's right in front of you. And I think a lot of both fascists and centrists have differing, <clears throat> they bifurcate on exactly how they manifest this, but they have a steadfast lack of acceptance because at some point, and this is where I riff on this quite vocally on, uh, on, social media a lot the notion of hope is a useful thing only when used in a proper way as a base object it's often a mask for very very deep cowardice that gets us well and truly fucked in ways like this mm -hmm. because it feels really nice temporarily but then that's the lying to ourselves about the la about the severity of the problems facing us makes it so that way we get blindsided by things like a fascist attack on a socialist bookstore when anyone with their ear to the ground in contemporary leftism, the the war drums have been banging for a while. It's If anything, it's surprising that it took this long for something as open as that to happen. Dune uh, today. Like, the kind of modus operandi of this uh, podcast is to cover recent literature, as in the last few months, or hopefully forthcoming stuff when you know, the publishers can be nice and send me stuff before it comes out. Um, mainly because I didn't see a lot of that happening. And when I did see it happening, it was always like the Cozy Coffee Book Club podcast and um yeah i wanted stuff that was a bit more bit more my speed as in like yeah irony poisoned shit poster speed and um but june kept coming up and we're gonna talk about it because i think it's 
as uh, someone pointed out, and I think the Atlantic, it's the one sci-fi and or fantasy uh, franchise that hasn't really been co-opted by either um, money, as in Star Wars, which existed for a long time to just push toys and video games and ancillary products, uh, in the same way Marvel's um, Comics Universe does, or it's been co-opted by the aforementioned fascists, as in my beloved Warhammer 40k universe has now just become a holdout for neo-reactionaries. Who... Which it, it it should be noted, and we mentioned this before, it should be noted there is a lot of brilliant writing in the Warhammer stuff that is meant as, just like Judge Dredd, meant as pointed satire, and then some flippant anime or furry avatar leftist on Twitter is going to say some shit like Poe's Law or whatever, but it's more that that blames the person making something and not the rapidity of fascists to colonize. Like we can't hold in our heads the notion of colonization in a, in a literal sense of like going to different parts of the globe and not envision it also as a um, psychic or idea space endeavor as well. They want to reach out and literally just plant their flag in ideas that are not theirs and were not made by them. And oftentimes were intentionally made to be swords against them. Cause that's, that's how something. That's how the brain virus of fascism grows. Yeah, yeah it fucking sucks. Whips ass. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I mean, it's so good. And um, yeah, and it came out of Britain in the late seventies and eighties. Thatcherism, uh, the start of all, all our current problems. And just like Judge Dredd, it was it presented a horrible dystopian future that no sane person would ever want to exist in. There were no good guys. They had to the, the they kind of introduced semi good guys quite recently in the Warhammer law, but uh, it didn't really stick, and they made the bad guys again. And um, yeah, it's no re thinking person could possibly look at that and see anything worth emulating, but they do. Yeah, because uh, what they can't destroy, they they take. And um, but June has. To oh, I, as far as I can see, totally resisted that, even though uh, the Warhammer universe was heavily based on Dune, just as much as it was on Tolkien. Dune uh, is, and Star Wars, is, probably takes a lot from Dune as well, uh, including... Yeah, it, uh, as a science fiction novel, it became... Or not, so, let me rephrase that. As a novel dealing with the science fictional, uh, fantastical version of the world. We're going to break down a couple modal things there in a second. Oh boy! Um, <laughs> Dune became incredibly foundational. It's uh, So as much as people like Asimov or um, uh, Arthur C. Clarke laid down, or Robert Heinlein, um, his fascism aside, laid down certain foundations for the aesthetics of science fiction. And like the notion of uh, Asimov's three laws, uh, like sent vast ripples out from, from the science fiction novels that it came from. It's a sort of part of our world now. Likewise, Arthur C. Clarke uh, invented the notion of geostatic satellites um, or geostationary satellites um, and scientists based 
the design for them off of stuff that he wrote. So as much as those had certain um, aesthetic um, and cultural uh, gifts that moved beyond science fiction, Dune very much became, and this is one of the reasons why it's so hard, I think, for fascists to get a hold of it. Um, it dug into, I guess, the goal of science fiction. Um, without getting too much into the novel ahead of time, the book is very largely a very thinly veiled analogy for the, um, for the European colonization of the Middle East, um, especially during the late 1800s into the early um, 20th century. And the level of granularity to it and number of small moving bits in order to make this otherwise very complex real world issue that we may get deeply attached to for very legitimate reasons. These are real people in the real world by somewhat abstracting that into a veil of fantasy or science fiction. Um, it's one of the reasons that uh, Lord of the Rings resonates so strongly because of the way that it um, abstracts out um, European and colonial conflict in uh, during World War One and World War Two into a fantasy veil. Um, we're able to sort of look at the moving bits and the notion of who's villainous and who's not, and who can we understand the actions of, even if we think like, oh, well, that specific action isn't so good. Um, starts to be a lot easier to grapple with in that abstract layer. Um, and we're going to get into the specifics of what that means in Dune in a little bit. But just the way that it was able to nail that is one of the reasons that as much as science fiction and fantasy had a really hard time penetrating the academic veil for, like, intellectual uh, acceptance, um, and so, sometimes that was pretty fucking legitimate. Uh, I love sci-fi and fantasy. I love even the pulpy stuff, but sometimes it very clearly does not hold up to Faulkner or things like that, or Virginia Woolf. Um, Dune made significant strides into that world specifically because the minute that you uh, ignored that it is set in the super future and there's like faster than light spaceships and all that kind of stuff, it is, one, the prose is just way better than a sci-fi novel needs. Like, it, no sci-fi novel needs to be written this well. Um, and the way that subtle moving parts make the engine move without it feeling like you're reading as much as I can love this stuff in sci-fi or fantasy novels, it doesn't feel at any point like you're reading a glossary of made-up terms or learning about fake technology for no other reason than when this machine does that thing later on, you don't go, what the fuck? It feels like it moves like a literary novel. It feels like it a literary novel might um, deals with the actual world instead of like the biggest issue I have with Game of Thrones is it's this tense political thriller about a continent that doesn't exist. So like, why do I care about their, the, it, those blockages don't really exist, especially if you're an adult reading Dune, the, the, the mapping onto the real becomes much easier as an adult than it is if you're trying to read it as a kid. And it becomes pretty apparent when you read it, why one, why it's had lasting effect and two, why it's become, 
and one of the reasons why we're covering it, such a foundational text for later, um, later either in the genre or in the traditional literary fiction world. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of summarize the plot because one thing I've noticed about June is um, people know of it, but a lot of people haven't really sat down and read the books. Um, that might have something to do with the David Lynch film, which we'll pass over later. But um, so the plot and the kind of backstory of June is it's the year 10,000 something. It's the 11th millennium. And um, for a good amount of time, the um, universe, or the galaxy rather, has been run by a kind of feudal system, uh, run based around an emperor and a group of noble houses and um, some guilds, the most important being the Navigator's Guild, because they can act they have a kind of monopoly on space travel. And there's also a number of other significant political factions like um, the Bene Gesserit uh, Sisterhood, who are an all-female mystical monk ninja uh, group, also psychic. And basically every all of the groups, all of the political factions, all of the cults, all the assassins, all of the navigators, they all um, derive their powers and in turn their political power from sub- <coughs> a substance called spice. And spice has basically gives you a, a bunch of random superpowers, uh, including the ability to fold space and therefore take spaceships across fast and light uh, distances, or it gives you the ability to see the future, or it uh, allows you to extend your life, and it's in, it's the m- most important substance possible in this universe. And the spice is only found on one planet, which is Arrakis or June. Although no one actually calls it June at any point. It's like noted that people also call it June, but then no one actually uses that term. And uh, when the book starts, the... Uh, Scion of one of the noble houses, Paul Atreides, is just about to move with his family from their quite normal kind of European climate uh, planet to take over ownership of Arrakis and therefore take ownership of spice production and become incredibly powerful because who controls the spice controls the universe is the refrain. That's like their winter is coming. And, uh, but it's a trap. The Harkonnen family, led by Vladimir Harkonnen, who is in the film one of my favorite characters. He is amazing in the film. And, um, he is basically gives the uh, planet June to the Atreides family and then has, has set a trap for them and has people inside close to them who betray um, the Duke Atreides and kill him. And at the, the point I got up to on reading this, which is about halfway through the first book, which is just called June, 
he, um, the Harkonnens have captured uh, Arrakis. They're now back in charge of spice production. The, the Atreides family have been slaughtered and only um, Paul Atreides and his mother Jessica, who is a Bene Gesserit, um, are left and they're assumed dead and they're in the desert, which is filled with giant worms the size of, like, Rhode Island that eat people. And in, uh, in uh, Campbellian terms, this would be known as the uh, the abyss in colloquial terms. Uh, they're colossally fucked. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Without, yeah, they're... Basically, since they arrived, uh, everything has gone badly for Paul and his mum. His it's attractive mum. The shit. Yeah, yeah they, his mom is notably hot. That's textual. Yeah. Um, that's one of the few, anytime I reread it, that's one of the few complaints that I have. Is like, why is she textually hot? Why is, <laughs> that doesn't seem necessary. Yeah, uh, she's uh, right? doesn't... A, a hot uh, psychic concubine from the future. Like, and, um, yeah, just normal. You got that MILF money? And I'm like, I don't need, I don't need to know that. That's not relevant, Frank. But thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Now I do know it. So I think in order to in order to parse these events, because when when just looking at them, it sounds at some point like yet another science fiction or yet another fantasy novel with a more political bent rather than uh, uh, rather than being about sword and sorcery shit mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, is that uh, a lot of these veils, I think, um, make themselves a lot more apparent. Uh, when reading as an adult. One, the number of very bad puns um, or very bad plays on or play on words that um, obscure what is literally being discussed, uh, such as uh, the Bene Gesserit is um, fairly clearly um, like a riff on Bene, which is the Latin word for good, and Jesuit. Um just a twist. So effectively becoming a slightly remolded um, uh, Catholic nunnery. Like the re one could imagine them as the remnants of the Catholic Church um, representing that kind of theolo or institutionalized theological power that has, especially in uh, uh, the world at the time of the writing of this novel in the 60s still had an inordinate, I mean, even now, an inordinate sway over global action. Um, it has much less sway now than it did in the 60s, despite how much sway it does have, but the figure of the Pope or of priests as being political figures is about as old as human history, um, especially when it comes to colonial action. Um, another thing is... Uh, Arrakis being a remarkably bad pun on a rock. <laughs> like, it, yep. when you're a kid, you're like, oh man, Arrakis. And then as an adult, you say it out loud once and you're like, Jesus, really, Frank? Like, <laughs> you didn't even make up a brand new word. Um, oh, you want to be. Spice Melange? I don't. Well, that one, I think. That one has, I think, a, a few more um, veils to it. I don't think there's necessarily something that Melange uh, maps to linguistically. 
Am I, I being wrong? I thought it was like um, I remember seeing a, a someone tweeted about this actually. It was a that the whole thing is based on a, a dumb pun. Basically, that melange in French means variety. So variety is the spice of life. Oh shit! <laughs> that sucks. I hate it you, Frank. Sucks. Well. It's very classic sci-fi to have really bad um, puns like that. Mm. But, that, but the function of spice being a combination of – and the mechanic of how it maps to oil will come up later. But one of the mappings is oil in the Middle East, and another is um, more generally soft power, mm. a sphere of influence and things like that. But having a physical manifest of it, that you literally get a physical thing – that gives you power over others, including psychic domination and whatnot, uh, merely by having it. Um, and then uh, the last little, uh, the last bigger moving bit is the imperial nature and uh, the, the nature of nobility is, um, and I think this is one of the reasons why it functions functions so well as a non-fascist novel and at times explicitly anti-fascist novel is they're clearly presented as a, a uh, millennia past um, terminus for the end of capitalism, but not in the positive revolutionary sense. They're in the, uh, the sense of total collapse. Like it collapses down to, um, corporations that have uh, become literally have become feudal and monarchical again and a political system that exists more to wrangle um, massive corporations together rather than have any I mean you even see that in the transnational boundaries of the Harkonnens territory and the Atreides territory that they trade the whole planets um, purely for uh, who gets to exploit the resources of those spaces. Mm. There's, um, and it comes up somewhat in the first half, but most of the back half of Dune, which we'll get to, deals a lot with that human factor of these are planets full of people and full of culture and full of history that are being treated merely as um, resource space to be... Uh, to be taken advantage of. Hmm. At yeah, this was, moment, uh, was kind oh, of one of, it was kind of one of my um, criticisms of the book so far. So it's good that it to know that it does it is eventually going to deal with that. It's just the book so far has been a lot of um, rich people, nobility sitting in uh, boardrooms discussing their plans to fuck each other over, and thereby get more money for themselves. And a lot of mystical stuff. It, so, it it presents pretty plainly, if perhaps, as you're saying, in an overlong and over-detailed manner, it is not sympathetic to the goals, desires, and ugly, rotten heart of um, exploitative colonial colonialism and colonial capitalism and things like that, and mm -hmm. colonial empire. It is pretty... It presents them as so remarkably ugly, sometimes to the point of physical ugliness. And it can be – the descriptions can be uh, the same kind of like fat phobic and ableist as he would unfortunately anticipate in the er uh, era. The the intellectual mapping is pretty obvious, but it's like maybe no. 
have to make them, you don't have to map uh, fat to bad, but okay, whatever. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I think if you were to stop here, um, which is in the film and in the sci-fi original, uh, or not sci-fi original, the sci-fi miniseries version, it becomes a big, like, climax point to Paul and his uh, mother trapped in the cave, and, and the Christ parallels um, start mounting at that point. Uh, um, you wind up feeling like this is just a science fiction story that's maybe a bit politically oriented, but still ultimately a fairly mundane uh, sci-fi interplanetary romp. Um, that's where the big twist, not only of the book, but of the entire series sort of kicks off in who saves Paul and what that does to his understanding of of Arrakis as a planet and of the Atreides and Harkonnen's grand project. Because up until this point, we're being presented that the Harkonnens are bad because they just, uh, not because they want to exploit Arrakis, but because they want to uh, decimate the Atreides. Like the, the whole plot of this first half um, in which perhaps the climactic event of this first half is the death of the patriarch of the Atreides family who is, I he, I never remember his name. Um, uh, Leto. Leto. Uh, yeah, Leto the first. Um, they, uh, the, the whole premise is that the Atreides family is good, but only because they're the main characters, but they presumably do the same kinds of things as the Harkonnens. And the whole well, point not, of sense... entirely. There was um, a bit, there were, there were a few bits where they kind of go overboard to established uh, Duke Leto as a kind of almost like social democrat as opposed to like the straight up fascist Harkonnens. He's, um, he does a kind of saves the cat moment where um, the Duke goes out to look at one of the sand, um, one of the spice factories, which are like these like mobile, huge um, desert crawler things. Uh, that go out on the sand, and because they're making a lot of noise and vibrations, the worms come and attack them, and then planes, or sorry, uh, helicopter analogs come in and pick up the factories and, and take them away, but the Harkonnens have um, uh, sabotaged this, so the the rescue uh, helicopters aren't there, so the Duke comes in on his own helicopter to save the, the workers who are down there on the the in the factory and in doing so loses the factory itself and all the spice in it which is like insanely expensive but he saves the people and uh people around him are remarking on how he, he puts such a high value on human life and uh basically he's just a decent guy and uh yeah there's Lots of bits uh, try to establish him as just like a, a good guy rather than a just repulsive, um, monstrous person like um, Baron Harkonnen. So yeah, the um, oh yeah. So so if anything, then the uh, so I I sometimes have to peel back the perception of um of this first half of the book. Um, 
as you move through the, uh, at least the first five of Frank Herbert's six student books, the perception even of these early stages starts to uh, turn. Um, but yeah, that uh, the notion that he's presented as a good um, social democratic colonial force rather than a purely fascistic, uh, purely exploitative colonial force. Um, but still there's something that stings in the back of the head that he's still, and it, it's one of the things that comes up in leftist rhetoric is like having a good king is still having a king, having a good, um, having, especially from like, uh, in like an ANCOM position of having that much centralized power doesn't prevent the next person who claims that power from being significantly more evil. Hmm. And we, we see America that in the last 10 years. We had a exactly. lovely, charming, <laughs> handsome guy. And then he gets, uh, because of just the nature of there being power and a presidency, it passes over to a Corpulent, rotten uh, fascist who is very much like Baron Harkonnen in so many ways, even down yeah, to the composition uh, of his family. I'm, I'm sure many um, like hashtag resistance types have uh, noted that similarity. It's disgustingly relevant now, um, to the point where we're going to try to aim it at bigger things than just you know fuck Donald Trump. I mean, granted, <laughs> fuck Donald Trump, but oh, you know, clearly, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, fuck, uh, but. Yeah, the, the, that, that lingering question of – and we even see this by the end of the first half where the Harkonnens have seized power and have seized even the, um, the duchy. Uh, uh, not weed, um, but like uh, the position of being a duke. I do like how duchy also is a, a slang term for weed. Um, <laughs> they, they're high now. Um, although you do get high off of spice, to be fair. Yeah. And uh, spice is literally everywhere, so you're always high. It's true. It's, um, yeah. The the real central uh, message of June, I think, is smoke weed every day. Smoke weed every day. Mm. Uh, uh, Nate Dog voice. Uh, but, yeah, so, so we see the Harkonnens come and seize power, and to... To a leftist reading this with a more critical eye towards trying to put the pulpiness aside and looking critically at the structures here, there's something that, that lingers there of the position. The colonial forces have not changed. All that's changed is the name of the forces, and one is a smiling dictatorial hand, and the other one is a scowling dictatorial hand. But there hasn't really been any significant shift. If anything, the, the trick of the Harkonnens of sending the Atreides here in such a so uh, a more granular version is that the the um the task of properly setting up the colon the colonization of Arrakis to properly exploit spice production uh, will require so much focus and attention that the entire Atreides family has to go to Arrakis to oversee this. Like there can't be a split of attention and must be purely focused here. And then the payout will be fantastically large if they manage to get the whole project done. And by having everyone in a centralized place that allows the Harkonnens to decapitate as much of this hereditary uh, corporation 
as they can. Because that's the other thing is if we no longer tell ourselves that this is some abstract bloodline that has control over who knows what and instead view them for what they are, which is a vast intergalactic corporation with hereditary control. This is the mapping of this, the Sisyphean is like damn near exact. It's just told from a different perspective. This is like hearing from, from the boss figures, but we get just this horrific an image of, um, worlds and planets that are being absolutely ravaged. But in this first half, they're all obscured because as you were saying, we're entirely in boardrooms as a leftist, your brain screams because you know what all of this means. You know what boardroom discussions about colonial action entail, but you don't see it. You just see this boardroom, this very like sterilized thing. And you're presented that the evil is the scheming of the Harkonnens and not necessarily this vast project in its entirety. And that's where I'm, I'm very excited for um, the back half of this book and your response to it, because that's where Dune, especially as a franchise begins its turn. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Frank Herbert was influenced a lot by figures like Freud and Young and, um, Heidegger, and uh, he also knew quite, knew quite a bit about Zen Buddhism before he began uh, writing this. Like, he just happened to run into a lot of it. And that led to a, uh, a politicization of him. Um, uh, that uh, gave him a... Uh, so a quote from the very last book, uh, which I think pins this quite well, um, is uh, which is called Chapter House Doom. All governments suffer a recurring problem. Power attracts pathological personalities. It is not that power corrupts, but that it is magnetic to the corruptible. Such people have a tendency to become drunk on violence, a condition to which they are quickly addicted. Um, this... And it, it's not necessarily the, the neocon or libertarian version of, or um, American libertarian version of like government bad because they won't want to take gum. Uh, I want gum. I fuck gum. Uh, and more that if you have certain kinds of power centralized for too long without any kind of very severe check from the populace, not from other uh, pillars of power, but from the people from which they are deriving that power, inevitably you will see an oppressive use of it. It's mm -hmm. it, it, You're playing a probability game, and unless that probability is zero, eventually you're going to hit some horrible, horrible act of violence. Um, and the theme of the remaining Dune books um, focuses on twists and turns of that question and of that problem where each chunk presents, well, what if this movement happened and d displaying uh, things that go, things that go awry with it. Um, the easiest map 
is again to, to the actual colonization in the late 1800s and early 20th century of the Middle East. Obviously, horrifically, colonization of that space from Europe had happened prior, but specifically, Dune seems to cover the uh, Britain seizing control of Iraq and Iran and then eventually ceding control with the Atreides roughly symbolizing British control. Hmm. Right now we're in the midst of seeing uh, French incursion on, on the Middle East uh, and the maneuverings in order to uh, uh, move uh, the Atreides out and to decapitate them so that it can be under um, other European control. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out a way to say this without just straight up spoiling the back half of the book. Um, I think it's been out long enough. Okay. Well, I was saying more to. Oh yeah, and you watched the movie. Yeah, I, I was watching so, the movie when I was like eight. Yeah, I got. I, I love it. It's bad, but I love it. Um. Mm. So as we move forward, we start seeing a a popular resistance based on or coming from uh the indigenous people of Arrakis, but still with Paul at the head. Um kind of Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, exactly. That was an explicit inspiration point. Like when you start picking up vibes of it as an adult, it's it smacks you in the face because it's beyond intentional. You're like, hmm. there absolutely can't be anything else here. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Like this is literally just what this is. Wisely so what we know from history is that Lawrence of Arabia was a bit more of a salacious figure than like film and popular culture tends to tell us. And it's not necessarily with him, but it's a general rite of passage with leftists everywhere to learn that these like white heroes of, you know, protecting the common people of Iraq or, uh, you know, the indigenous people in Australia, they almost always did something fucking horrible that just isn't getting discussed. Mm. Dune is aware of this. Without getting too much into specific details, you can break Dune into a couple different chunks. One is just the book Dune. And you end with a pretty a pretty decent point. And at least it's it's touching on themes of what matters most is that the people of Arrakis or Arrakis get to make decisions about the shape of Arrakis culturally and politically and uh, in terms of its resources and not external forces. You can then push out to the first, so Dune and Dune Messiah, where Dune Messiah largely covers um, Paul's ascent to being a theological figurehead. He starts being less comparable to uh, a Christ figure or Lawrence of Arabia, more comparable to a figure like Muhammad um, as a... Uh, a political and cultural unifier of all of the planet of Arrakis through this um, through this other veil of uh, of theology. You then can bracket it out a bit further to the first four books. So the next two being Children of Dune, and this is a pretty telling one: God Emperor of Dune. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is actually where they uh, the, uh, shitheads got the term for Trump with God Emperor Trump. Um, really? Which I, is thought ex- was, uh, I thought that was Warhammer. 
It was a little of both because they had depictions of him as uh, have his head on the end of a uh, his head on the end of a uh, a Shai Halud. Oh, did I um, never, never seen him? I've always I've always saw him in golden power armor. Granted, uh, Warhammer also borrowed God Emperor from did it, yeah. from Dune. So <laughs> all all loops back in where mm. Children of Dune and God Emperor of Dune. So by I think it's by the end of Dune and maybe in Dune Messiah, the, the children of Paul wind up getting born. And one of them he names after his father, Leto II. Children of Dune and God Emperor of Dune follow two threads. One is the ascent of power of Leto II to eventually becoming um, quite literally the God Emperor of the planet of Arrakis and an incredibly despotic God Emperor. Um, that's where themes of uh, the evil of colonial power, not who is the colonizer, but colonization itself start coming clear because a member of the Atreides family starts being exactly the kind of horrific, narcissistic wickedness that the Harkonnens were previously. And spoiler for the end of God Emperor of Dune Literally an army of millions of clones of Duncan uh, attack and kill him. <laughs> they, wow. By the end of that point, uh, Duncan, the greatest weapon master and soldier in all of the history of Arrakis, is uh, cloned millions of times. And the army is nothing but clones of Duncan, which will pass. Um, wow. Yeah, okay, I, it, I, I it's bomb. Yeah, it's so, crazy. Uh, it's an... Isn't it also at, at a point where I think either Leto or Paul, Leto second or Paul, becomes a giant spice worm? That's Leto. Leto, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's the the second plot point is that Paul has an awakening through his messianic position that the project of the Atreides, even his project, is wrong. And so the, the the plot line with Paul is he's attempting to cede power back to the Fremen, which is quite boringly enough, clearly uh, a riff on free men, which is uh, a colonial term for people outside of colonial jurisdiction. It's um, again, it smacks you on the nose. But yeah, the plot line with Paul is he becomes aware that even the project of the Atreides of being good stewards of Arrakis is wrong and that Arrakis should belong to the Fremen, and that spice production should be a project of the Fremen. And this is a big point. Uh, the Bene Gesserit have their hand in a lot of this, um, which maps again to the uh, attempted theological colonization of the Middle East as well. Paul, in a pretty big move, turns against uh, the Bene Gesserit, um, which, as more or less their chosen one as well, uh, doesn't go over well. Um, and without giving too much away, the fact that God Emperor of Dune almost exclusively follows Leto II's um, literal horrific transformation into an immortal sandworm, which I think by the end of that book has been a lot. He's been alive for like, oh, uh, Reading one sentence. Leto II Atreides, the God Emperor, has ruled the universe as a tyrant for 3,500 years after becoming a hybrid of human and giant sandworm. 
normal book. And uh, the uh, it also the the more colonization that happens of Arrakis, the more the Shai Hulud die off until eventually by God Emperor of Dune, Leto is himself the only remaining Shai Hulud. So all spice production comes directly from Leto, which gives him such direct control. Wow. Yeah. So he's just a like jacking off massive amounts of spice and yep. he's the size of the Twin Towers and it's just normal book. Very just normal. Absolutely normal regular. Um, and again, the, the, the body horror transformations there, I think, again, touch very deeply into something like Sisyphean. And it doesn't necessarily require viewing it through the lens of Sisyphean, but I think doing that brings out these natural elements of Dune, which is why it's so beloved as a leftist science fiction novel that you look at the arc of it and there's absolutely nothing redemptive presented about um, colonization, about um, about capitalism. It presents capitalism very clearly as being something that inevitably collapses to fascism, mm -hmm. that you either defeat it through a popular socialist movement as attempted through the Fremen or it turns into a wicked fascistic state as shown in the very beginning of Dune with the um, intergalactic corporations and uh, the attempted seizure of power of the Harkonnens and uh, as shown at the end of Dune by the collapse of power back to, uh, back to Leto II. Cool. So we're going to talk about some other aspects of that in the second half, but um, let's play a song. Let's do a song now. Um, so this isn't really a metal song in the big sense of the term. Um, Miserable is a, I don't even want to call it a side project because it's uh, its half of um, Christina Esfandiari's um, musical output. She's probably best known as the lead singer of King Woman, which is an incredible like avant-garde sludge band and um miserable is kind of her thing even though she's got a, a whole band behind her whereas king woman is a is a band band everyone everyone plays their part and everyone has a hand in writing the songs whereas miserable is all written arranged and produced by her and uh miserable uh, the first album came out in 2016. It was called Uncontrollable, and it was uh, it was a fucking brilliant record. Um, according to Spotify, I played the song Oven from that um, album more than any other song in 2016. Um, which, if you have heard the song, and especially if you've read the lyrics, is really concerning. Because um, <laughs> that, yeah, that's uh, not a happy song. Um, no. It's, uh, and I don't think she's any happier on uh, her new album, uh, Loverboy slash Dog Days, which are actually two EPs kind of stuck together. Uh, but it's certainly faster and poppier, whereas the previous thing was more shoegaze. This is more um, kind of power pop in its way. If you, if you, um, the other really great album of 2016, which was, um, 
Waxahachie's um oh, I've got the works. Uh, Can't ever remember the name of Waxahachie's records. Yeah. I'm just the new one. The old one. The one she recorded on a stereo and it sounds terrible, but it's really good. Out in a storm. Um it's yeah, uh, this new musical record is kind of comp- comparable in its sound to Out in the Storm. But um as you'll as you're about to hear, Miss Esfandiari has a really distinctive, really beautiful voice, uh, which v- is very deep and very like old school and it, it, she gets like deep to the point where it's incomprehensible sometimes, but it's always really beautiful. Uh, so here is the song Gasoline off that album. Uh, she's touring right now, so if you're in uh, Reno or Seattle or Los Angeles or Fresno, then you'll be able to see her over the coming month. And um, she'll probably have a new King Woman album out soon because that's also her band and it's also amazing. So let's listen to Gasoline. Tell me how you feel But I'm not 
Yes, that was uh, Miserable, aka also known as King Woman, aka also known as Christiana, Christina Sfandiari, and um, that was Gasoline. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I noticed reading um, reading June for the first time in your thirties is not the same as reading June for your first time in your teens, which is when I imagine most people are gonna first contact like the big sci-fi franchises like this and Star Wars and Star Trek and Game of Thrones and even uh, Ender's Game and stuff like that. And one of the things that really has come to piss me off about all of those um, sci-fi franchises uh, is the uh, is the Messiah thing, is the chosen one narrative. It's it really gets on my nerves nowadays because yeah it's, because it's everywhere like if you take all of the um great sci-fi or fantasy franchises you'll always find someone is a chosen one in some regard uh the only big exception is lord of the rings but even then aragorn is a secretly a prince and he is special uh, Ender's Game, he's genetically modified to be better than everyone. Um, Star Wars, he, Luke Skywalker is uh, better than everyone because of the Force, and his dad in the prequel trilogies is better than everyone because he's literally um, immaculately conceived and has more midi-chlorians. And one of the really good things they're doing with the new Star Wars films is breaking apart all of the um, chosen one bullshit and making the person who is the most obviously chosen one, um, Kylo Ren, into an awful fascist, proud boy ass, monstrous, greasy, terrible person. And also the best character in all of Star Wars. Don't at me. And don't say it's Boba Fett, because Boba Fett literally does nothing. Um, He's lit. I mean, that's it. That's my whole defense is that he's tight, which is <laughs> that's not really defense. A, so yeah. that's <laughs> yeah. Everyone loves Boba Fett based on nothing. He's got um, a jetpack and a rocket launcher and a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah, and do you know what? Uh, someone, one of those proud boys in Portland uh, was dressed as this weekend. Boba Fett. Rest my case. Like and, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. The whole argument is he has a jetpack and a rocket throw or and a rocket launcher and a flamethrower that's lit that's it that's the whole argument yeah. yeah but uh yeah chosen one narratives are fucking everywhere in any sort of fantastical fiction and it annoys the hell out of me because even like t lawrence wasn't a chosen one he was just in the right place at the right time and had some skills uh there aren't there are never chosen ones in real life. There are rich people who, um, or nobility, who are in positions where they can wield a lot of power, and some of them do it for better ends than others. But there are also guys like Genghis Khan, or uh, sorry, it should be pronounced actually Genghis Khan, but uh, that's another thing, who was like a illiterate Stone Age peasant and then ended up by the end of his life as the most powerful being that's ever lived. Like, there is always um, examples of chosen ones in 
sci-fi and fantasy, but in real life, it's a bit more nuanced. And I really do wish that there'd be a bit more, like, that he could have someone come from nothing and just by being smart and skilled and a bit lucky, then they can become God Emperor and fuse with a sandworm. Like, where's that story, huh? Nowhere. Nowhere at all. No but, one's written it yet, which yeah. is fuck. Yeah. Who's going to write it? Yeah, maybe points at camera to you. <laughs> in the audience. Um, but from what you're telling me, it sounds like... Because in the first half of June that I'm reading right now, it's... So Paul has been... Um, is the outcome of a selective breeding program that the Bene Gesserit have been running for thousands of years in order to make a messiah. Uh, I can't remember the, the name for it, um, but they have a... Wizard Tadarak. All right. Uh, Look. <laughs> yeah, no, no need for that, all right? All right. I know the voices. You can't stop this. <laughs> yeah, so he... Paul, um, even though he's he wasn't supposed to be born, his his mother was supposed to have a girl child. Um, Paul is also the Hadarak thing, and um, he's also the Bene Gesserit have also manipulated the Fremen's um, uh, religion on June for thousands of years in order to make them um, believe that their uh, Mardi or their messiah figure is going to turn up soon. And all of the signs point to it being Paul. <coughs> uh, although the Harkonnens are trying to install um, Fane, who is played memorably by Sting in the film, as the messiah. And personally, you know, I, I would go for Fane over Paul. Paul's kind of a, a worse. He's kind of a total melt. But Fane is interesting. So I, I'm on team Fane. Um, yeah, and to the point that I've got into the book, um, Paul has also just worked out that he's half Harkonnen as well. So he's got Harkonnen blood in him for his mum, who is uh, Baron Harkonnen's, I think, niece? No, daughter. Daughter, actually. So, um... Yeah, Paul would also be, I think, heir apparent to the Harkonnen family as well. And there's all that Game of Thrones stuff about who gets to be the heir, heir of what family, how Jon Snow is half Targaryen, spoilers, but it's not because, you know. It's, it's fucking the song of ice and fire. Like, if you can't look at that and go, oh, <laughs> that guy named Snow is his last name. Hmm. Like... <laughs> Yeah, and there's another family that has dragons, a.k.a. the thing that shoots fire out of its face. It's if you not... can't put that together, you're fucking stupid. I'll just say it. Yeah. You're, 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 you're worthless. And if you spend a lot of time on Reddit uh, extrapolating on that and creating like these complex, almost algebraic theories of who and who isn't a Targaryen, um, including like... Uh, Peter Dinklage's character or just some random person who's mentioned a few times the, the reader. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out the reader was the real Targaryens all this time <laughs> but uh, 
yeah, the the Chosen One narrative fucking sucks, and I hate it in all its incarnations. But from what you're saying, it sounds like they problematize it later on, right? Yes. The uh, the arc of Dune is it presents. Um, we're gonna say it. It's quite Hegelian. There we go. Whoa. Uh, in, in that it presents a situation and a presumed solution to it. And present, uh, with the synthesis, the synthesis becomes the new thesis. When you look at it and go, wait, no, there's still a problem here. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily reach its end by the end of Dune, but at least it presents... It avoids not only the specific issue of the Chosen One, which is the inevitable collapse of the organicism of power and of the shape of life, where one of the reasons why we yearn for socialism so much is that allows the fluidity of, you know, people 30 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now can make decisions that better suit their environment rather than like the perennial problem of American politics, which is that we're locked into a document that on paper we're allowed to change, but in reality we never, ever, ever will, um, to where we're having discussions about, like, should we have guns? Well, 200 year, or 250 years ago, they said we should have guns. And it's like, yeah, that's not a good argument. Like, <laughs> if we can present an argument that relates specifically to here and now, and, you know, we get some interesting ones from uh, – revolutionary figures of color which is like disenfranchised folk are precisely the people that something like, like the second amendment isn't meant for middle class white people it would be specifically meant for things like brown people to keep themselves safe from an oppressive governmental force and it's like that's an interesting point we can engage with that and then white people are like also i want to shoot up schools and my girlfriend and it's like mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh that uh, the Dune is engaged in that same question and that eventually the larger uh, – so uh, the the term that Paul – or the name that Paul takes as a sign of manhood, Muad'Dib, is an actual Arabic term that means teacher. Um, Did you know that? Uh, yep. Um, a lot of the Fremen is just straight-up Arabic, just actually yeah. Arabic. Um Likewise, uh, he winds up getting the term Mahdi um, from the Fremen mm-hmm. a little bit later. Yeah. Mahdi is literally the Islamic term for the uh, eschatological redeemer. So normally in Islam, figure, basically, yeah, Very normally nice. in Islam, it literally is Jesus Christ, um, who they also believe is uh, the Messiah, just not the Son of God, just the chosen one to save mankind. Um, but yeah, Paul becomes this collapse of uh, Christian and Islamic uh, holy figure, and it's from that position and the futility to actually make a better world as that, and witnessing the Fremen, like the common people in their day-to-day actions, actually providing what he as the chosen one should be providing, that he has the revelation of the role of the chosen one is to eradicate the colonizers and to let the people be themselves. And the only way to do that is to like, since you can't do that alone, it's ultimately, it becomes, this is where the Zen Buddhism sort of comes in. 
the ultimate revelation of the chosen one is that the, the notion of a chosen one is paradoxical and nonsensical. Hmm. That yeah. it's like the end of the road is realizing that the road itself has no value. Hmm. Um, so did it play so that with an interesting, in an interesting way with that in Harry Potter of all things. Yeah. At, at the very end, it, it, it's heavily implied. I think, I don't know in the books, I've only ever seen the films, but it's heavily implied that Harry Potter was never the chosen one to defeat Voldemort. He was a distraction. He was supposed to look so much like the chosen one. The Voldemort concentrates entirely on him while, was it like Nigel Wigglebottom or whatever city YA name that guy has? He's the actual uh, I I think you one. need to... I think you need to confront the fact that all British people have names like Nigel Wigglebottom. I know. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like, yeah. It, we yeah, all have and, city names. And, and even the notion that um, by fixating on Harry, all the other figures of his life were able to do the slow project of locating Horcruxes and um, the notion that of everyone chipping in that like Harry literally could not have done that alone. Um, mm. Neither could whatever his face um, that it literally, it say mass in order to do these things and having the respect that it's sort of like any, any socialist will say this at the end of the day. It's not necessarily that managers are worthless, but that they are but one piece of this larger puzzle. And so the notion of privileging them above all the other pieces doesn't make any sense. Because a man Unless, uh, Elon advantage. Musk, who is the god emperor of um, all the world, and he's going to bright the future. Uh, I want him to get blown up with a missile. Just just hit him with a missile. <laughs> That's fine. Maybe, I think what he's done to Grimes is just mind control, and that if we annihilate him with a missile, then she'll be okay again. Yeah, it'll be like the end of um, Scott Pilgrim. She'll take right, off right. her mind control collar, and she'll become... Our uh, um, good industrial girlfriend again. Uh, a big part of Frank Herbert's project with Dune is also, and this comes up with both, quite literally, with Duncan the weapon master. So he's just a weapon master in, in the book Dune. And he takes on a revolutionary tenor by the end of the book. But um, his prowess in combat becomes so legendary that he gets cloned over and over. And a big problem by the end, uh, and one of the last things that the clone army of Duncan does is destroy the clone factory. Because oh. they, they're they like, we're born into a genetic lot based on the actions of this guy way back when, and we all have that. But this notion of like, what happens to the artist Duncan, or to the farmer Duncan, or to the shopkeeper Duncan, no, they're all placed into the project of war because of this sort of genetic lot and feeling that like, it doesn't matter if that's correct. There's a wickedness to that that can't be tolerated. Mm. Um, and it strikes at a very anarchistic notion that Frank Herbert seemed to internalize quite a bit, especially from uh, his experience with both Heidegger um, and Zen Buddhism of the eradication of something like hero worship. So in Heidegger, um, who, uh, full disclosure, did join the Nazi party. There are reasons that he did that that had to do with, um, like, 
he would have been utterly disenfranchised if he didn't. But that's also not to defend it because there are plenty of good, brave people who decided that that was simply not worth it. Um, and he did write a lot of stuff in his like private journals, which was very, very problematic. Stuff about yeah, the, yeah. the extermination of Asiatic races and so on. He's he a, yeah, he yeah. wasn't entirely unproblematic, I think. Yeah, he had quite, quite a bit of issues. Um, mm. So just acknowledge, um, don't want that to go unstated. Uh, a lot of his notions were of enclosure and the notion that and he borrowed this from Zen Buddhism, um, which honestly didn't need to. They already said all these ideas within Buddhist thought. But that the notion of the world is a uniformity, the notion of division of the world into uh, uh, composite or uh, into atomic figures that make up the composite of the universe can be helpful in understanding things. But you always have to understand them in the context of the rest of the world. Um and this is also where a lot of leftist ideas of culture wind up coming from, that in order to understand a culture, you also have to understand the context of all of the world but that culture and how it conditions – and same with individuals and how culture conditions the individual um, and in return the feedback that individual objects have back into this broader world. Um, so uh, within, within the uh, – within the framework of Dune, the, the element that Frank Herbert picked up is that because of this, notions of a chosen one or notions of hero worship become absolutely ludicrous because even if they exist, they are but a figure within this broader world. Like a Paul with no Fremen to be the chosen one of is utterly worthless, but Fremen without Paul can exist and have culture and have presence and have full lives and thing, things like that. Yeah. Even his genetic lottery win is the result of Bene Gesserit's um, selectively breeding people for literally thousands of years. Yes. Yeah. The result of generations of hard work and experimentation by millions of people. And as much as that may read the sum as... Uh, well, just accept the world as it is and just the worker should be happy as a worker and the noble should be happy as a noble and that kind of bullshit. The novel, again, takes an explicitly revolutionary turn where it says, no, this is the thing that justifies the common turning against the privileged few in order to seize and redistribute that, uh, that privilege across the body of the world. Because there is no justification for a single figure to have to preside over all of the world. Like there, there is no way to justify it. Hmm. Um, like the the novel, especially as the novels creep on, but even within this first one, don't offer a lot of room for fascistic thought to remain. I don't necessarily think, as an American author in the '60s, um, that especially of the level of uh, mainstream acceptance that Frank Herbert had. I don't think he necessarily was fully cognizant of the deep revolutionary nature of what he was saying or how deep of a revolutionary nature, but I don't think it would have been alien to him if someone pointed it out. Hmm. Yeah. With everything going on in the world at the time, I mean, this was uh, 1965, so things were going to get 
the the new left had happened. Hippies were happening. Uh, Alan Watts was talking about Buddhist ideas in um, American culture, and that was becoming big. He'd had the beats for a long time already. You know, it's not like he wouldn't. He would be utterly without any sort of resources in terms of yeah. evolutionary ideas. And even we paint it in a certain way that the the Korean War had. Actually, in America, we don't learn much about the culture in America around the Korean War. Um, but there were significant anti-war movements and significant movements that this was very clearly an imperial war of soft power with a hard edge to sort of mush political terms together. That it wasn't about the South being the most free. It was about North Korea would be under the sway of the Soviet Union and allow Soviet soft power uh, in that area of the world. And South Korea would be under the political sway of the United States and allow soft power for us. And so, and we also see this sometimes in bad parts of the overly online left of an overt defense of the USSR as good because their imperial power directly cut against American imperial power without thinking about the millions of dead Koreans that left in the wake of the struggle of these two powers. The novel, especially picking the Harkonnens as Vladimir's and things like that, and Atreides as people like Paul and more European names, you start getting this vibe of NATO versus the USSR. And the novel presents who is it that suffers? Um, Afghanis. Iraqis, um, Koreans, that the sectors of conflict of imperial power, soft and hard, suffer more than either of these empires. And they can they can drum up all the rhetoric they want. But at the end of the day, like, what was it? Something like five million casualties in the Korean War or something like that. Yeah. So like one in five North Koreans died in American bombing. Like. Yeah, and it's ludicrous numbers, just way, way beyond anything you can kind of imagine happening, even in the Middle East nowadays. um, And we look at, uh, we wind up looking at, uh, oh, sorry, apparently the uh, estimated casualties are only 2.5 million, not five. Uh, you start looking at numbers like that or the numbers of dead and wounded in Vietnam, um, in, again, uh, like Afghanistan and Iraq during uh, Soviet incursion and American in- reinforcement of uh, rebel forces there. We can critique why America would reinforce certain rebels and not others. We can make similar critiques of the USSR, but inevitably the notion that one empire, even if it's nominally the the more left empire, uh, seizing control of an area from its own people being good, because that means America doesn't have it, still inevitably centers colonial power as the heart of the story of the world and not people as the story of the world. And Dune feels very, like, pressing, pressingly obviously aware of that and becomes more and more aware of it as time goes on. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to enjoy the rest 
like the early parts, as as you've said, uh, as I've said, are boardroom meetings where people play the Game of Thrones and uh, they conspire against each other and regular ass people are largely like standing guard outside while rich people play games with their lives. Uh, so I think next week when we come back to, to June as a part of our first double episode, uh, I think I'll have more to say on this book and hopefully better things to say about it because right now it's it's uh you know it's not uh it's not appealing to my sensibilities but i think that's about to change from what you're saying so um you know what else is a spice sumac like <laughs> sumac is actually a spice it's also yeah. a band yeah and <laughs> it's a band uh that's centers around Aaron Turner from Isis, the band, um, Old Man Gloom and Mammoth. Uh, I've seen Old Man Gloom live and they're pretty good. I've never really gone to Mammoth. Isis, the band, uh, were very good back in the day. Well, the first couple of albums were anyway. And um, Sumac is his new one. It's a trio. And um, it's also got Dude from Baptists and Russian Circles. And these arms are snakes, Ryan Cook. Oh, I've, I've spoken to him. He's a really nice guy. And um, they've got a new record out called Love in Shadow, which is a series of love songs, kind of. But you, <laughs> you're, not, you're not actually going to get that from this because it's awesome, heavy as fuck, riff heavy sludge with like a, a twinge of psych rock to it. And also just... just it's really well done. Uh, the full jazz in there. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I'm. I'm gonna have to edit this 15 minute song down to five. So don't know if you'll get to the free jazz, but um, it's there, and you can go on their Bandcamp, sumac.bandcamp.com, and you can see that, and you can listen to the whole thing. And there's gonna be three more songs on this album, and um, yeah, I think it's gonna be one of the uh, one of the big ones in 2018. So just letting you guys know. I've heard the record already and I can I can strongly confirm that. Yeah. This is gonna be like um the body the body's last one or two mold or something. One of those ones that we're gonna probably gonna come up, up on the best of to twenty eighteen list. Um which we're gonna do. Uh for both books and music. So that's that's coming. Um so yeah, check out some uh, the song Attis's Blade of uh, Love in Shadow by Sumac. And next week, we're going to be doing the rest of June, where shit starts ramping up, gets more complicated. He's going to ride a sandworm. Um, there's going to be all kinds of shit. Uh, and and I'll probably ask why those uh, like special sound guns that they have in the uh, film aren't actually in the book. <laughs> but... Um, because they're a bad idea. <laughs> okay, that's that's settled that, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, because you know people have to talk during wars, and if every time you talk, you shoot a projectile that can destroy, a, like an airplane, then it's just not going to work, is it? But um, <laughs> so okay, sound guns aren't a thing. Bummer. 
Um, but this is the musical equivalent of one of their sound guns by Atis Blade. So listen to that and come back next week for more Dune, then week after for Chapo Book, then another thing, which I'll confirm at some point. This is Sumac.